Good morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 4. We'll continue our study of the life of the Lord Jesus. Luke chapter 4. And just to give us a little bit of a background, last week we looked at Jesus beginning his earthly ministry at Nazareth. And while we acknowledge that there was probably some things that happened, this is the way that uh, Luke narrates it for us, starting with the visit at Nazareth, where Jesus was rejected. And now we have the next step in Jesus' public ministry, starting in verse 31. So Luke chapter 4 and verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know you, who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in the midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. So they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is, for with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place, in the surrounding region. And the Lord blessed the reading of his word. So starting at verse 31, we see Jesus teaching on the Sabbath, plural, and uh, we find out in verse 33, he was teaching on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And uh, why is Jesus teaching on the Sabbath, which would be today's Saturday? Why is he teaching in the synagogue? Well, it's really related to what happened last week, if you remember, he went to Nazareth and he was rejected. The people there were not open to him. They were not open, open to what he had to tell them about the Lord. So what the Lord is doing now he is seeking those who are seeking God. It says in the prophets, And you shall seek me and find me you, when you shall search for me with all your heart. This is true. It is only those who are seeking to God that are really open to the word of God that can find God. And so Jesus is looking for people like that. Why uh, the Sabbath? Why the synagogue? Well, the synagogue was, in a sense, an equivalent of the churches in those days. Today, if somebody lives down the neighborhood, less so in this later age when we have a lot of people from other parts of the world where Hinduism or Islam or other religions might reign, but uh, in this country, probably until recently, uh, if a person was interested in, in knowing more about God, they'll probably come to church on a Sunday. That was the equivalent in those days of going to the synagogue on a Saturday. That is where and when people would be teaching about God. So if you're interested in God, in that time you'd go to the synagogue on Saturday, on the Sabbath. So that's what people are doing there, and that's why Jesus is there. He is seeking those who are seeking God or who are open to God. 
next we see that the people are astonished at his teaching. I, I think what a loss for Nazareth. You know, here was coming one to teach them about God, as we looked at last week, and they rejected him because of their pride. And uh, yet these people are seeking, and they're rewarded with hearing the word of God preached with authority. I don't know about you, but I love a good sermon, <laughs> which is why I don't often listen to my own. <laughs> but uh, Jesus' word was with authority. What does that mean? Well, it's more than the fact that he had the authority to preach and teach the things of God. He did, obviously, but other people do also. Uh, in the Old Testament, the priests were given the responsibility to teach people out of the law of Moses. So as a priest, you could have come and opened the law of Moses and taught the people with authority. Authority, number one, that you were teaching the words of God, and authority, number two, that God told you to do so. So people could have done it, and there were prophets. Uh, we looked at John the Baptist uh, earlier as we were looking at Luke a man that had the authority of God to preach a message from God. So Jesus wasn't unique in having the authority to preach the word of God. So I was thinking, uh, in what way was his preaching with authority? In what way was teaching, uh, Jesus' teaching unique compared to other people? And I may use myself as a counterexample. <laughs> uh, the first one I thought is, one thing I love about a preacher is, is they're knowledgeable. I, I love a preacher that's knowledgeable. He's preaching, and he really knows what he's talking about. Uh, and I am not. I am very limited in what I know about the Bible. And I, I've, 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 I'm interested in teaching the Bible. I consider myself a Bible teacher. And I spend a lot of time in the Word of God trying to understand it. But I'm limited. I'm limited, first of all, in what knowledge is accessible to me, what I even know that the Bible says. I don't know it all, even though I've read through it. It's amazing. You read through a passage that you've read through before, and all of a sudden there's something new. Uh, I'm also limited in my understanding. I may read a passage 10 times, 20 times, and I don't understand fully what it says. And yet, Jesus had this said about him. Actually, he said it himself. said, all things are delivered unto me by my Father, and no man knows the Son but the Father. Neither knows any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomever the Son will reveal him. So nobody knew God like Jesus did. Yes, we all have some knowledge at our fingertips, and the prophets had some knowledge, but no one knew the Father completely, to reveal the Father completely except for the Lord Jesus. Why? Because... He was God, and he knew the Father. He was the Son in the bosom of the Father. He knew God intimately, fully. There was no knowledge missing from him. So you had a knowledgeable teacher in the Lord Jesus. And, of course, all these things were talking about God. He, he knew about God like nobody else knew about God. He had the full knowledge and revelation of God in himself. And, therefore, he could reveal it. He could reveal it to others. Uh, next item I have is focused. Jesus was a focused preacher or teacher of the Word of God. And uh, again, I'm going to use myself as a counterexample. I struggle a lot of times through the week. Again, I see this as a major ministry that I have, maybe the major ministry that God has for me in this world. And so I, I, I know I'm going to be preaching, and so I prepare. I read the passage ahead of time. I might look up some commentary. I might look at the Greek uh, to try to understand better the passage so I can share it with you. But I'm distracted. I'm in the process of trying to buy a house. 
And, uh, you know, that's distracting. You know, things keep coming up that make me look into other things, and I leave the Word of God. Um, and uh, I know everybody has things in their lives that distract them. They're not focused. Uh, one of the uh, names I love for the Lord Jesus in the Scripture is in John chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then jumping to verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It describes Jesus here as the Word, and it describes Him as the Word from before He even became a man. He was the Word. It speaks about His role in the Godhead. The Word was with God. Well, what's the role of the Word? Well, the purpose of a Word is to reveal the thought. I was standing here and thinking all these wonderful things about the Word of God, it would do you no profit. <laughs> Only if I speak it can you understand what it is that I am thinking. And in that sense, the Lord Jesus reveals God. He is the Word of God. He reveals God. And then it says, the Word became flesh. The very purpose that Jesus entered into the world was to reveal God. He was focused. There was nothing else for him about life but to reveal God. So in Jesus, you had a focused teacher, undistracted by other things. Uh, the third point I had, again, setting Jesus aside from all other teachers, we said he was knowledgeable like nobody else. He was focused like nobody else. Third one I have is he was passionate. He was passionate like nobody else. I, I often am held back in my preaching because I don't quite feel what I'm preaching. I might be preaching about how, how uh, much God hates sin. And yet I am a sinner myself. And it's hard for me to preach about the hatred that God has for sin when I am a sinner. Or I might preach about the love that God has for sinners. Well, I don't love sinners. At least not the way God loves sinners. Well, Jesus was different. It says this about him in Hebrews. God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So again, Jesus revealing God, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The, the main thought I have here is Jesus is the express image of his person. He was fully God. He was fully uh, expressing the way God was. He loved sinners the way God loved sinners. He hated sin the way God hated sin. So when he preached about the hatred that God had for sin, he could preach it with the full hatred that God felt for sin. I can't. When he preached about the love that God has for sinners, he could preach it with the full love in his heart that God has for sinners. I can't. And so Jesus could preach and teach with authority, with power. It says this about him. Once uh, the, uh, the rulers in the temple didn't appreciate what Jesus was teaching, and so they sent some men to arrest Jesus. And the men show up empty-handed, it says, Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to him, Why have you not brought him? We sent you to catch him. You didn't bring him. 
And the officers answered, never man spake like this man. Okay, they weren't going to touch him because of his teaching with authority, the things of God. So, I wish Jesus was here preaching instead of me. And you could really enjoy what he had to say. But here we're looking at Jesus. We're studying his character as a teacher. We're not looking at his teachings yet. That will be later on. We're really merely looking at him as his character, his power as a teacher. The next thing we see is spiritual opposition. There's a demon in the synagogue. And the first question that pops to my mind, why is there a demon in the synagogue? Right? You'd think, yeah, here's a religious house. People are here seeking God, and it should be a spiritual place. Demons would want to have nothing to do with it, right? Well, that's not true. Demons are very, very interested in the religions of man. They're highly involved in them. This is the reason why. We don't often think about it. But uh, the power that Satan has over people is through their thoughts about God. The power that Satan has over people is through their thoughts about God. And we see it from the very first sin of man. Uh, If you want to, you could turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. I'll read the passage. This is, uh, sorry, chapter 3 and verse 1. This is the sin and the fall of man. In verse 1 it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So here is, he's starting by sowing a doubt. Okay? God never told them not to eat of every tree in the garden. There was just one tree. God made them uh, an uh, abundance of trees with all kinds of fruits that were pleasant to behold and good to eat. And there was just one tree. God said, not that one. That one you can't eat of. But Satan comes and he tries to suggest to the mind of the woman that God is being unreasonable. You mean God really told you you can't eat out of any of these trees? He's trying to, to, to capture something in the mind, in the mind, in respect to what she thinks about God. He's trying to affect her view of God. Well, the woman responds in verse... And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Which is interesting. It looks like she added something. If you look earlier at the command, God didn't say they can't touch it. But it looks like her mind is beginning to be influenced in a negative way toward God. Well, Satan is on a roll now, so he's pushing this home. Um, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Those two things Satan does here. One is he calls God a liar, because God said they will die. He says, You're not going to die. Don't worry about what God said. But really more more insinuating is the suggestion that God does not want their best. There's something really good for you in this tree, and God is holding it back from you. And it was that decision, believing the devil, that God didn't really love them, God didn't really seek their best, God wasn't trustworthy. They decided, they chose to believe that that the devil said, and that's what led them to follow him. At that point, they were on their own. They were taking the fruit, the forbidden fruit. But really, the power of Satan was suggesting to them that God did not love them. And um, the power of Satan 
In religions today is the same way. The way people think about God allows Satan to keep them under his power. Uh, and that's why we find a demon in the synagogue. There's, an, there's evidence that all world religions are following Satan or are under Satan's control. And the evidence to me is this. All world religions will tell you this. If you want to get... So first of all, we have to realize the, the, the purpose of world religion. The purpose of world religion is the fact that we sense there's something wrong about ourselves. Satan doesn't have to work hard to convince us. There is a, a feeling of need, a feeling of want in our lives. There's a feeling of separation from God. People can tell that not all is well. There is death in the world. People are dying. This is not a good place. Somehow we've been separated from God, and somehow we need to come back. This is what all religions seek to solve is the problem of how do we get back to be with God? How do we fix the problem that we're sensing? And in all world religion, the answer is this. There's something you have to do. There's something you can do that's so good that God will take you back. Or there's a way you can change and make yourself into a better person good enough that God will take you back. All world religions that I'm familiar with, and I believe all of them, have this in common. There's something you do or there's a change in your life that you do that makes you good enough to go to heaven. Why is that of the devil? Well, two reasons. First of all, it's self-focused. You're trying to raise yourself up. You're in trying to some way, you, you become the focus of your religion. You have to become good enough. In some way, you earn the place. You have part of the glory. And it's the same thing that Satan was doing, reaching, saying, I will be like the Most High wanting a place on the throne of God, self-elevation, okay? Christianity is different because there's nothing for me to boast of in heaven. I am just a sinner. I have done nothing to deserve being in heaven. The only reason I can be in heaven is because Christ died for me and paid for my sins and he's giving me free entrance into heaven so I can be there and praise him for all my days. Okay? There, is, there is no other religion like it. In all other religions, there's something I have to do to deserve to be there. Christianity, biblical Christianity is the only one that says, I have done nothing. He has done it all. Praise his name. So that's really the signature you see that the, synagogue, that the, the demon is in the synagogue. There is Satan's power is present in all world religions. Uh, people will say this, you know, all religions you know, lead to heaven. And uh, I say no religion leads to heaven. Only Christ takes you to heaven. <clears throat> okay, so there's a, there's a demon in the synagogue. Then the demon um, responds, responds to Jesus by crying out. So the, first que- the next question I had is why does he feel the need of doing anything? Why doesn't the demon sit there and enjoy the show like everybody else? Well... Because Jesus is not there to do any good to the demon. Uh, it says this in Hebrews. For as much then as the children are partaker of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death for all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus came here to destroy the devil. You think he'll sit back? by and let it happen. He came to deliver mankind from under bondage to Satan. You think Satan will sit by and let it happen? So that's what's happening here. Basically, he's fighting back. The demon is fighting back against what 
he sees Jesus doing uh, in the synagogue. So that's understandable. Next thing we need to understand, as we try to look specifically at what this demon is doing and trying to understand what's behind it, we need to understand that demons don't understand what God is doing. Uh, often when you watch a battle, it makes sense when the two sides know what each sides are doing. I, I see Mike is not here, so I can talk about him freely. I was looking for some sort of good battle illustration I know Mike uh, Bellis is practically an expert in civil war battles. I was looking for a good illustration, and I couldn't find one. So you'll have to just stretch your imagination. But uh, there's a war going on here, and there's two sides. The problem with the demons, because they don't understand what Jesus is doing, they're just shooting in the dark. You know, they're hoping to somehow hit him, but they don't know where he is at. They don't know what his weak spot is. They don't know what will really hurt him. Uh, it says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world into, unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What this says is God had a wisdom. He had a plan. The Lord Jesus Christ was going to die for our sins so we can go to heaven. Now, it was a hidden wisdom. Nobody knew it. Nobody had any idea. The demons didn't know it. Satan didn't know it. When he he used Judas and others to crucify the Lord Jesus, he didn't realize he was opening the gateway to heaven by doing it. Had he known it, he would have never tempted Judas or got Judas or the Jewish leaders to crucify Jesus. He was, you know, putting nails in his own coffin. He wouldn't have done it. He didn't know. He didn't know. And in the same way, this demon doesn't really know what to do. Okay, he's shooting in the dark here. Uh, so, so with that, we'll, look, we'll try to think a little bit what, what's the goals of this demon. <clears throat> so first of all, maybe he was just trying to disrupt the service. You know, it's pretty disruptive. If someone were to stand up and, you know, call me names and accuse me in a loud voice, that would disrupt the service. I would be a less effective teacher as a result. Now, it, was very, it would be very short-term, and it, fi- it, it backfires in such a way that you wouldn't think the demon would just be trying to disrupt the service, but possible. Or maybe besides for other things, he's trying to disrupt the service. Second possibility is he's trying to hurt Jesus' Jesus's credibility. It typically doesn't add to your credibility where a person who perhaps is known to be less than stable stands up and starts saying that you're the Son of God or the Holy One of God. So it's possible That by the very fact this person is supporting Jesus, it would actually hurt Jesus' credibility. It's possible. I don't think it's the strongest argument, but it's a possibility. The third one, which is my favorite, uh, he could be trying to expose Jesus. What what do I mean? Why Why would Satan, why would a demon want to expose the fact that Jesus is the Son of God or God? It doesn't seem to support it because we know it's important for people to know Jesus is God. Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So it's a necessary part of salvation is to believe that Jesus really is God. So why would a demon ever try to help Jesus doing it? Well, once again, we're, we're doing what we call a Monday morning quarterbacking. You know, we know after the fact what happened, but the demons didn't. They didn't know. Um, in their eyes, Jesus wasn't being uh, forthright with who he was. Now, Jesus did say he was God, 
He did demonstrate he was God with miracles, but not nearly as powerfully as demons expected him to. Uh, for example, just to get some idea of what Jesus could have done, if you would turn with me to Mark chapter 9, we will uh, have a quick view of what's known as Transfiguration, or Mount of Transfiguration, Mark chapter 9. Jesus says in verse 1, And he said to them, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. The whole purpose for this is Jesus for the first time disclosed to the disciples that he would be crucified. And that was such a shocker to them that their faith was shaken. And Jesus is going to strengthen it a little bit. This is the only time in Jesus' three years he does this. Okay? And he just picks three of the disciples, the three that already have the most faith, okay, that will survive this experience, if you would. Uh, verse 2, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's a good thing for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Now we see here Jesus becomes transfigured. He becomes a being of light. It says here he was so white as no laundry on earth can do. And I understand a little bit of that because of, I told you I'm becoming an expert in light now. That's my new job. I'm studying light. And, and, and white is light. And basically there was light coming out of his garment. It says in, in another passage he was as bright as the sun. Okay, They had a hard time looking at it. There was pure light coming out of Jesus. Uh, not just his clothes, his face too, everything. He was, if you would, unveiling himself a little bit. They had a glimpse of who Jesus truly was. Now, Jesus could have been doing this 24-7 for his 33 years on the earth because this is who he was. And it's actually really just a glimpse of who Jesus is. Now, what do you think would have happened if Jesus would have done that? What if Jesus was here on earth from being a babe to whenever, when he was crucified, a being of light? Well, the first thing is he could have never been crucified. There was no way Satan would have convinced the Jewish leadership to crucify a being of light. Okay, that, that wouldn't have happened. We see it here with the disciples. These are the guys that have the most faith with Je in Jesus. They know him the most intimately. They love him the most. And they're quaking in fear as Jesus is unveiling just a little bit of himself before them. Okay, but uh, the main thing is, uh, is the demons recognize that Jesus is not revealing himself as much as he could. So again, they're shooting in the dark. They're trying to reveal the fact that he is the son of God. Uh, and, and just following up a little bit on that thought, why wasn't Jesus doing it? Well, number one, he couldn't have been crucified. He couldn't have died for our sins had he revealed who he was as fully as the demons expected him to. Uh, the other uh, that I thought of is he, he wouldn't have been approachable. Think of Jesus' purpose here was to teach people about God, to reveal God to them. That's what we're studying in this passage. 
is Jesus as a teacher, teaching people about God. And think, if he was a being of light, how much could people have approached him? Would, would mothers have brought Jesus their babies for him to bless as a being of light? Would uh, lepers have come to him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean? Would uh, sinners, tax collectors, uh, have come to him, recognize, seeing him as a being of light? They wouldn't have. They wouldn't have. Really, Jesus, if Jesus appeared as such a being of light, people would have been terrified of him. He couldn't have fully revealed the compassion, the mercy, and that love that God has for sinners. So this was really something Jesus needed to do as part of his job to reach to us, as part of being a teacher, was to be approachable, someone that you could see interacting with people. As we will see later on in the gospel, that wouldn't have been possible. We couldn't have learned about God everything that we can know about God from Jesus had Jesus appeared in such a manner or walked around in such a manner. Okay. So, so much about the spiritual position of the demon. Why does Jesus tell them to be quiet? Why does Jesus uh, tell the demon to be quiet and cast him out? Again, this was me uh, as a younger believer studying this thing to understand why is the demon revealing that this is God. Well, okay, so he's revealing that this is God. Well, why does Jesus tell him to stop up? Shut up. Isn't this good advertisement? Um, well, so obviously Jesus wasn't happy about it. The, he tells him to, to be quiet. And one reason, obviously, is he wasn't interested in what the demon was trying to do. The demon wasn't trying to help. The demon was disrupting things. The demon was... Uh, trying to either discredit Jesus or overexpose Jesus, and Jesus wasn't interested in that. The other reason I'm thinking of why Jesus is telling him to be quiet, and not just here, we'll see. Whenever demons start talking about Jesus, he tells them to shut up or be quiet. Uh, another reason I was thinking about it is Jesus is against slave labor. You think about it, you have a person here who is enslaved by a demon. This person is not acting in his free will. He has a demon controlling him and using him to say these things. And Jesus came to free us from the power of the devil. How could he use a person who is enslaved to the devil to promote his cause? He couldn't possibly. And so that's why he's shouting the demon out and then casting the demon out. Uh, which is the next thought here. We don't often appreciate what it means. It happens so frequently in the gospel, Jesus just speaking to a demon and the demon living. And we don't see that today. We don't typically see demon possession of people. And we don't see perhaps the difficulties that demons bring into people's life or the difficulty of getting a demon out of somebody's life. So we don't relate to it easily. What, what does it mean that Jesus cast a, person, a demon out? What's the big deal? Why is that so special? Well, it might help if we try to think about how much power this being has that Jesus is casting out. And uh, I was thinking of one incident that there's not a lot we know about the power of angels or demons in the Bible. But there is one incident in Second King where uh, the army of Assyria surrounds Jerusalem. And Assyria at that time is the greatest empire on the face of the earth. And uh, King Hezekiah has been crying out to the Lord and asking the Lord to save him. And so God finally sends one angel. And this is what the angel does in one night. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians 
and four score and five thousand. That's a hundred and eighty-five thousand people. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead, dead corpses. So one angel destroys the mightiest army on the face of the earth in one night. That's the power of the person who is right now dwelling inside of the man in the synagogue that is uh, disrupting the service. And Jesus speaks a few words, and in a few seconds that being is forced out of that person without the power even hurting the person he was inside. He throws him on the ground, but it says he doesn't hurt him. So Jesus is demonstrating incredible power here in casting this demon out, which is not surprising results in uh, Jesus, Jesus uh, being proclaimed, people being amazed at this power and pro- proclaiming the power of Jesus to others. As a final thought here, I wanted to think again a little bit about this power, but from a different perspective. Jesus has the power to command the demon to do what he wants the demon to do. The demon has no power to resist. Jesus has the power to command us to do what he wants us to do. And we would have no power to resist what Jesus tells us. And yet we don't see Jesus doing that. We see here, here as in Nazareth, very humbly coming and teaching. In Nazareth, the people would have none of him. They tried to kill him. He just walks away. Here he spends Sabbath after Sabbath teaching the people about God, when in one word or a few words he can get them to obey and do whatever he wants. Why does he not do it? Well, uh, I have an illustration from my own life, and that's my children. I, I have power over my children. In theory, I can make my children do what I want them to do, but I don't because there's something else I want for my children. Now, it doesn't mean I shouldn't be training and disciplining and helping my children learn how to be righteous and do what's good. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking over a, a simple thing that I want my children to do. I can force them to do it, but I don't. Why? It's because I want them to do it out of love. I love my children, and I will be satisfied with nothing less than my children doing something for me that I'm asking to do out of love for me. Not, not that they do it, at least not all the time, but that's what my heart yearns for as a, as a parent. My heart yearns that my children will do what I ask them to do out of love and respect to me. And Jesus says this. <clears throat> he says, if you love me, obey my commandments. Jesus is the same way. He is satisfied with nothing short of love from us. And love is the one thing you can't force people to. It has to be a response, and we have that in the scriptures. We love him because he first loved us. And that is the wonder of his love we see in this passage. He has the power to force us to do whatever he wants, and yet he won't. All he wants to do is reveal to us how much God loves us so that in response we will love him back. And then anything we do, we do out of love to him. Why? Because love is satisfied with nothing short of love. He loves us, and so he's satisfied with nothing short of us loving him back. That's why he came. That's why he saved us. It's to love him so that we could say with the, uh, the person who wrote the songs of Solomon, I am his, and he is mine. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you so much for this great love you have for us. We realize, Lord, we don't deserve it, and yet in you there is this mighty love for us. And Lord, we would not that any person here would fall short of responding to that great love you have for them by loving you back and enjoying that full salvation you purchased for them in Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.